Folks, a quick message from our sponsors, Know Before. So what's a con game? It's a fraud that works by getting the victim to misplace their confidence in the con artist. In the world of cybersecurity, we call confidence tricks social engineering. And as our sponsors, Know Before, will tell you, human error is how most organizations are compromised. What are some of the ways organizations are victimized by social engineering? We'll find out here in just a minute. Now, our sponsors' questions about forms of social engineering come in this form. Know Before will tell you that there's human contact, there can be con games. It's important to build the kind of security culture in which your employees are enabled to make smart security decisions. To do that, they need a new school security awareness training. See how security culture stacks up against Know Before's free phishing test. Get it now at knowbefore.com forward slash phishing test. That's knowbefore.com forward slash fishing test. Now, no before wants to thank you for listening to the show and I want to thank them for sponsoring it. They are the provider of the world's largest security awareness and simulated fishing platform. Be sure to take advantage of their free fishing test, which you can find at knowbefore.com forward slash fishing test. Think no before for your security training. Hey everyone, welcome to the CISO Talk Podcast. James Azar, your host. Got a great episode for us this week. I have my very good friend, someone who I've met a few years ago, got to spend some time with here at a CyberHub Summit in Atlanta, Dr. Jason Edwards, who is the Cybersecurity InfoSec Strategy Principal at USAA. Jason, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, James. Glad to be here. It's been a while since we've... Uh, We've spoken, um, and I'm glad to finally get you on the podcast because I think the first time we we met, this podcast was in its infancy, and now it's what it is. <laughs> yeah. Oh no! And congratulations. I mean, it's great, it's fantastic. I'm really excited to have you on because you have a very very unique role within USAA, and so before we kind of get into what what does your title really mean. Let's tell us a little bit about how your career got started in cyber and and how you you've been at USAA for this long. So um well I got started, you know, of course decades ago right with IT, you know, as a kid everybody loves IT and in the 80s it was programming on an Apple IIe and then you know graduating to a TRS-80 and then and moving on and then um after I joined the army after a couple of years um I came back wanted to do something different and the army was fantastic. They had a career field called FA53. Uh, which basically you become the CISO CIO for a brigade combat team. And so I did a couple tours in Iraq is that, uh, came back, had some great assignments in the States and then retired in the wonderful city of San Antonio. Um, I had a couple positions in the industry before that, mostly in IT infrastructure, working with a couple companies. And then, uh, in 2017, um, I came on board at USA as a consultant for their audit department, for their cybersecurity audit department. Uh, then I was lucky enough to be hired at the company in their compliance department. And then I moved down to InfoSec to help them build out assurance functions, some assurance stuff that I do. And so that's what I currently do. Um, I deal a lot with regulatory compliance and the work that we're doing around that and, and dealing with the operational managers every day. I have another fantastic partner who's also the strategy principal. It's uh, Rob Fisher. Uh, and he's really fantastic to work with. And together, we kind of form that core of, of uh, strategy for USA and for cybersecurity. You're also an adjunct professor. Yeah, yeah, in my in my third job, right? You know what I mean? In my fourth <laughs> job. Uh, no, I got really lucky. I met a, a, the dean of Hallmark, Dr. Dr. Paul Cooper, uh, a little over a year and a half ago. He was uh, over at Phoenix when I was finishing my doctorate. And uh, he asked me to come on board to help teach over there and bring some life into it. Uh, he, he brought on a lot of other fantastic instructors. Uh, there's a good core there. Um, Hallmark, I really, really enjoy, right? I enjoy teaching, I think, more than anything. Um, just being able to, to express, you know, how many possibilities there are in the field of cybersecurity. A lot of folks, you know, a lot of young people, they go into the, they go into university, say they want to be in cyber, and they think that everything revolves around pen testing, to be honest with you, right? Or, or working in incident response. And, and the great thing is, is being able to shape these young minds and teach them that there is a 
vast array of possible career opportunities in cyber for, for whatever taste that you have, right? Everything from management tracks to risk and compliance to actually doing pen testing and more of that or, or even forensics. I mean, I think that's the great thing about our field. And one of the things I enjoy teaching at Hallmark through their program uh, for both their bachelor's and their master's is, is just helping people explore those possibilities. You know, we also get a lot of folks that come in at the adult level who want to switch careers. And, you know, and I'm glad to inform them. And I'm really happy when we talk about it to explain to them what, what you know, unlimited possibilities there are in our career field, right? You know, and, and cybersecurity is growing every day. It's fantastic. Cybersecurity is not just pen testing. I think the common misconception from a lot of people is you have to start as a pen tester to be in cyber. It's exactly. like people are trying to create a path that doesn't, there's no need to create a path in cyber. We need data analytics people in cyber. We need regulatory folks in cyber. We need pen testers. We need engineers. We need architects. We need them all. There's, there's no exception. And especially if you're an adult person, right? If you're if you're a little bit older, right, 30s, 40s, 50s, and you're really looking for a career change, absolutely, there's a place for you in cybersecurity, right? And and you know you will learn some of the fundamentals like everybody else, right, in a master's program at Hallmark. Uh, but you're also going to learn all these different possibilities, right? So don't just think. And I want anybody listening to this saying, "Well, I'm an IT guy, and I've been." You know, I've been doing it forever or I'm a, you know, a, you know, I'm an IT manager or something like that. And I don't I don't think, you know, at my level, I can make the transition. You absolutely can. We need that kind of experience right in the cybersecurity field. Yeah, you know, we can't wait 20 years to grow leadership. Right. Well, the, the um, biggest job shortage today in cyber is in middle management. Right. Because we either have people that are highly qualified to be CISOs mm -hmm. or we've got a bunch of pen testers and SOC analysts. And then yeah. that middle part is just filled by uh, contractors from uh, KPMG. <laughs> you're right. You're right. Well, yeah. And that's exactly what it is. And that's where. And those, it's funny because those consultants are probably usually a lot of cases in those two areas as well, right? But they fill that role, you know. Um, but I, I think there's a lot of great experience, especially people who've led IT teams for years. Right, moving over into this, and there's there's some equivalent functions, right? People who led development around coding and application development, right? We have application security that you'd be fantastic in, right? Uh, if you're a network, a Cisco administrator, and you want to get into cybersecurity, absolutely, we need you in cybersecurity defense, right? You know, especially around you know firewalls and ultimate threat management, intrusion protection, uh, and then of course critical thinkers. Like you know, I, I've met a couple of people in the military who you know they did military intelligence, right? Or they they did something close to that. Well, we absolutely need you as well because that's exactly what threat intelligence is. Open source intelligence collection, right? That we use through threat intelligence sources and and you know and, and threats and, and threat taxonomies, right? Right. So let's talk a little bit about establishing and building teams and leadership. I think in cyber, oftentimes we talk about technology, we talk about threat actors, we rarely talk about our internal leadership. So what are some? You know, we're, we're talking about, and, and you were just saying. We need all these people from different backgrounds. So what qualities do you look for when you're hiring people? So what are some of the and, standout qualities you look for? And I'll say in general, right? Not specific to USA, of course, but just in general over my career, right? You look for someone who's personable and will fit in with the team. And, and but what I mean by that is that I think everybody in an interview looks at the other person across the table and says, can I work with this person day in, day out for a year? Right. Do I get that feeling from this person? Right. Do we sync as people? And, and what I do tell my students a lot of cases, right, is to make sure that when you're in these interviews, you make that personal connection. Right. That's your number one goal is to make a personal connection because they really have to judge you. And I do that, too. Everybody judges you like, can I work for this person or work with this person, you know, over the next year or two or even five years? Right. And then secondly, you look at their experience around how they handle crisis. Right. So and I would like to say that cybersecurity is never has crisis, but let's face it, we, we pretty much live crisis to crisis in some days, right? Or some weeks or some months. And that's a really key <laughs> or some skill, hours, right? some minutes. Yeah, some <laughs> hours, some minutes, right? Yeah. And, and, and you know, it's so funny because you think about it, you know, in IT, it's usually an availability crisis or an availability crisis, right? Uh, so you've got to have that experience. But when you get into cybersecurity management, it's, oh my God, is the company going to exist 10 minutes from now crisis? You know what I mean? Like it's such a, it, you know, you've, you've upscaled the risk of your crisis management to an extreme degree. And that's why I say, you know, you definitely want to look at leaders in other industries and, and see how well they can equate into your industry. And, and like you said, there's, there's not a deep bench of cyber in, in the country right now, right? And there's so many companies competing for these folks 
right? You know, it, it's also going to come down to, and I would say is, are you the kind of leader that these people would want to work for? So it's also on you, right, in these interviews and these sessions to make sure that you're making a connection to that person and showing them that they're valued, right, and that they would be valued on your team because a lot of people will take that into consideration. It's not just money. Like a lot of people will throw money at you in, in cybersecurity. In some cases, it's going to be pretty much similar. And it's really going to come down to where do I think it would be the best place for me to work, right? And and just a little plug for my current job, right? That was USAA. And and just every day for a couple of years now, I've been thinking every morning, like, yeah, this is such a great decision. <laughs> well, I mean, USAA is also a, a a bank with a real purpose. It's a financial institution with a purpose. It serves the veterans, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it serves the 1%. But the 1%, not in Wall Street, the 1% that makes sure that we can still be free every single day in this country. Oh, yeah, and their families and their grandchildren right. and their families' families, right? It's a, it's definitely a community that's different than most in the country, right? And it's and if you've never been in the military, right, it's one of those experiences that you always have that respect for. But being in the military, of course, and then coming to USA, and, and they're such a fantastic employer. But it's, it's kind of funny. I've been a USA member for almost 20 years. And so when I started working at USA, I was like, oh, this is how that all works, right? You know what I mean? Because I'd, I'd always had fantastic experiences, right, on the phones. You know, when, when you work with them and they're through their app and everything, they've always been number one, right? You know, USA is uh, famous because they had so many military members. How do you deposit checks when you're in the military, right? And USA actually created that technology to do it with a cell phone. And they did it based on the need of their members. And that's really what drives USA every day is, is those members out in the field. And we see that through visualizations in the company and through training in the company and through messaging in the company. But it's, it's really something I will tell you that every single person at USA takes to heart. Yeah, it's, um, I will say this, um, it's still sad that our government pays our service people with checks. Well, in most cases they don't, right? In right. this case it is, yeah, you know. In this but, case it's ACH for the predominant. It's ACH, yeah. But, and so, and I mean, yeah. Well, and I think there's two, right? You know, you always look at the military and the profession that they serve and the risks that they take for the money that they're paid, right? And, and if you think about it, there's just no amount of money you can pay for someone who will give their life for their country, right? And so, you know, that's one great thing about USA and many of the other companies that serve the military do is to make sure that they take care of them in every way possible, right? So USA giving back money to its members through the car insurance program that they had over the past couple of months. And, and you see that quite a lot. It's truly a company that believes that from top to bottom. Yeah, it's um, that's been a really interesting thing to see how companies have adjusted to the COVID stuff. And we'll get into that in a little bit. So you started talking about you also need to demonstrate leadership skills. So what skills do you think we as security leaders um, need to have in order to really successfully lead and hire the right talent in our in our teams and in our respective organizations? I would say it's situational awareness. Right. I mean, you're going to have a lot of things coming at you. And and, uh, you know, I had a platoon sergeant a very long time ago and he described us as scouts. And he said, we're a we're a jack of all trades and a master of none. And that's what a leader in cybersecurity in a lot of cases is. Right. You're going to have many multi multidiscipline teams that may be working for you or or many multidiscipline things. Right. So one thing is you have to have a good sense of operation of situational awareness. Right. Like they talk about with a pilot, being able to visualize things in your head and see where they are in the battlefield like a military commander. And that's really kind of how you are as a cybersecurity person. You really truly need to understand how this clock over here is functioning. It's really not just cogs, right, in a machine. It's multiple machines with multiple cogs moving at different speeds. And you kind of have to have that understanding, right? And that's where I say, like, in a lot of cases, people transitioning into cybersecurity bring with them some of the basic and most important skills is that, is that situational awareness, right? When you talk about situational awareness, oftentimes security leaders will confuse that with maybe um, um, being there. How has situational awareness really developed in this COVID-19 area where, you know, you're not in the office with your staff. You're not able to read body language as easy. You're not able to uh, uh, get someone's energy or attitude if they're having a bad day, got into a fight with their wife or got into a fight with their partners, husbands or whoever. How, how do you, how did you kind of adapt your situational awareness in, in the COVID-19 era? Well, I think speaking for me, right, in the military, we always deal with people remotely in a lot of cases, right? You have to command an organization and only talk to them through a radio in 99% of the cases, right? Especially in a real stressful environment. So I think for ex-military, it comes as a little bit of a more 
it's a more acceptable solution, right? We understand that more. I will say as an organization, USA had already been pushing work from home for years, really ahead of the field, I think, in many cases. And they've already developed a ton of strategies to manage work from home employees that a lot of the employees now who are managing work from home for the first time were able to really take advantage of that deep bench of knowledge that the company has already put together. Um, I will say in a lot of cases, one, you're going to have to be much more patient right than you are normally people don't do they don't react the same way over email uh, you need to make sure that you're communicating effectively uh, and you also need to forget you know don't forget the fact that you have a telephone right a lot of people sit behind their computers they wait for skype meetings or zoom meetings to have that discussion well sometimes just pick up the phone right in many cases in meetings you know i'll be texting another person in the meeting going hey did you hear that the same way i heard that what do you want to address it as, right? And we, and we do that kind of back-channel communication to make sure. And then sometimes you just have to over-communicate. In an office, right, you may say hi to one of your employees uh, on a daily basis or, you know, once a week or something like that, but, you know, you visually have them within sight of you, right? And so you understand that how they look and how they act and things are normal. You're not going to have that through a virtual team. Right, you're going to have to over-communicate in a lot of cases, and I think what a lot of successful leaders have done is they've set up these sessions during the week, where through Zoom or through Skype, they can just all they you know they don't talk about work. Right, you have a meeting without work where people just talk about, hey, what's going on in your life? You know what I mean? Hey, what are you guys doing? How are you coping with this? Right, and give them an opportunity to um, to to use that water cooler that they're kind of missing. Right, so especially in a home environment, I got two fantastic daughters and a fantastic and if you know me very well you understand how how understanding a person who's married to me must be right so uh, uh and and you know one of one of my daughters is a gymnast and when i say bouncing off the walls i mean that quite literally bouncing off the walls during the pandemic and so one of the things that you miss is being an actual in an office worker is that you can go to work and have a different set of conversations about that you know you have work friends that you talk to about home and life right in the pandemic you don't have that Right? You're literally stuck in your house. And so another thing that, that people also have to manage and understand is that in your home, if you're frustrated with the meeting, you get up, you cannot just go right into the other room where your kids are and be frustrated. Right At work, when you have a frustrating meeting, you get to walk out of the meeting. You get to walk around your office. You can go take a break. Right, You can do that. At home, it's it's with the amount of meetings that we're having in place of these physical interactions. It's literally just meeting on top of meeting on top of meeting. And what you don't realize is you're carrying this wave of frustration throughout your day, and you really got to be cognizant of that. So let's let's talk about leadership beyond security. Let's talk about security leadership within an enterprise. What skills are needed to really communicate security effectively across the enterprise outside of the security team? So, so one thing I, I talk about a lot, right, especially with the board of directors and some other folks, is that security is like a confidence game. People have to believe that you're doing what's best for the business, because in a lot of cases, the business does not understand what you do, right? They just assume cybersecurity is securing the enterprise. And, and to be fair, that's not what they should have to understand, right? Our business partners are successful because they are experts in their field, right? So uh, many years ago for the, the beginning of my doctoral program, I read an article and I, I wrote some stuff on it and it was about doctors who are adopting technology, right? Especially in the workforce, right? So you have these doctors who've been successful at what they do for 30 years, 20, 30 years, brain surgeons, some of the most brilliant people on our planet, right? Hardworking people. And then you try to tell them how to use a SharePoint workflow and they feel like they're idiots. You know what I mean? And, and, and so we kind of make some calculations and judgments based on that. What we have to do as cybersecurity people is understand that our brain surgeons are going to be successful because they're focused on brain surgery, not that they're expected to know everything in cybersecurity that we do. They have to trust us to do that in the same way that we would trust a doctor or a professional with our lives when they're doing what they do, right? Um, so what we have to do in the business, a lot of it is just marketing. We have to go out out of our way to over-explain or to produce a brochure in some cases, right, where normally we would do it. Um, at USA, we have BSOs, right, Bank uh, Business Information Security Officers, and they work for our, our, our governance arm. And what they do is they actually go to business meetings, and they're, they're the CISOs presence in these meetings where they can say, hey, have you considered this as part of that plan that you're doing as part of, you know, a cybersecurity aspect? Um, so you get out there and you mix. You show them the value of your program by by having these discussions with them, right? And lastly, you understand that they can't be focused on cybersecurity all the time. So you develop your training and awareness programs to help them. 
not to just, you know, explain them, right? You know what I mean? They're not getting the PowerPoint presentation anymore that says, here's some information. You're actually developing a program that's tailored to them. Like, for example, how do you talk to someone in insurance? How do you talk to someone in banking and get them to understand the cybersecurity risk, right? Uh, or how important it is to check your emails for phishing. Um, and in a lot of that cases, the, the modern cybersecurity leader is not just a leader of technical resources, right? You're a salesman for your program. Uh, at the end of the day, cybersecurity is a cost center, just like IT. IT is a cost center to many people in business. It's where they put money and then it goes out and it does stuff, right? But that money doesn't come back. Uh, a cybersecurity leader, a modern cybersecurity leader has to explain how they're a business enabler, right? Uh, and look at many of these businesses that now are just primarily internet presences, Right. Imagine if cybersecurity is bad at that business or they don't take it seriously enough. We've seen what happens to those businesses. And unlike Equifax, which is like a public utility, they won't survive the storm of a large breach. Right. And so it's important for you as a cybersecurity leader. Half of your job is going to be selling your program and the other half of your job is going to be running your program. A challenge that we have to contend with for years to come is is the idea of how do we effectively communicate security across an enterprise and culture matters right i think in usaa uh because it's a it's a organization that serves veterans that predominantly works with people who've spent time in either the military law enforcement or other spots security tends to be a state of mind the situational awareness you talk about is something that exists within people who served in the military but it doesn't necessarily exist with basic civilians. Basic mm-hmm. civilians don't always pay attention to situational awareness. And so um, uh, I'm interested to see how this develops with you. Like, I'm curious to see two years from now if you say the same thing. Oh, uh, well, and, and the other thing I will tell you, working since I worked cyber and IT in the Army, I've had this, I've actually had this since 2006, this opinion, right? So one of my first jobs, right, as I became an FA-53, is I was assigned to a 2nd Brigade 1st Cav at Fort Hood, and literally two months later, we deployed to Iraq, right? And my job was to keep the, the engines running in cybersecurity and IT. So we had, you know, we had the full Microsoft stack. We had Linux stacks that we had to run. We had specific battle command system stacks that we had to take care of, right? And there's about 125 people in the brigade that were responsible for these things. And I was the CISO CIO for that brigade, right? And so every day I would have to go into a room with a colonel. And I had two fantastic brigade commanders, you know, I, I just want to put down General Roberts and General Gonzalez. And I had to go into a room with them and explain to them why this was important to a person whose whole job is to understand armor, infantry, and fighting. <laughs> and anything that takes away from that, he believes people will die, right? So you're really kind of running into that, like, sir, your password is important. I know it's not going to save people's lives, but let me try to equate to you why it's important, <laughs> right? And, and a lot of times you, you get these looks of like, just, okay, I heard like every other word you said, and you learn quickly how to adapt to your audience, right? Because you won't survive in that position for long. He's going to look at you as someone who just can't talk to you. Now, now fast forward like 10, 15 years later, I worked in an energy company, right? A construction a support services company. And, and it would be the same thing. These people who, you know, they're, they're fantastic in what they do, right? But I have to make them successful and protect them, whether they, and sometimes whether they like it or not, right? <laughs> uh, to in order to ensure the security of the business. I know you don't like passwords. I know you don't like doing this. Let me come up with strategies to help you out, right? Hey, Windows, hello, right? So we went to the Microsoft <laughs> Service. Like, Guess what? You don't have to use a password. You literally just have to hold it at your face, right? And that's really the idea that we should have. Security should become ubiquitous at some point. At some point. Mm-hmm. You would hope sooner rather than later. I mean, it's always going to be complimented, you know, complex on our end. Right. We are always going to see the complexity as CISOs and security leaders. Right. But that does not mean the business has to. Well, I, I think that's the challenge that our cyber is a was associated with IT for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And IT 20 years ago were the people of no. Today, cyber yep. um, in its early decade were the people of no. Right. And Equifax, you bring up Equifax. Equifax was a classic example of having a very, very – they're, they're one of their first security officers there was, you know, in the Atlanta area. He's a legend CISO. He built an amazing security program, but he built a program that was predominantly based on no. And that's from information that I've received from a lot of people who worked at, at, at Equifax. 
But he, they had a very, very strong program, but the program was hindering business and business didn't understand why they needed such stringent security. So then when he moved on and they hired someone else, they wanted to hire a person of yes, but yes, with no backbone, led to so much compromise that led to not patching your Apache struts, to led to having a very loose security policy, led to security wasn't part of business and the way business operated. And the, the you know... It's like a, a, a pilot, right? A plane just doesn't randomly cl- crash. There's a series of events that happen that bring a plane to a point where it, it, it crashes. And cyber, to me, is the same way. It's not, one, it's not that phishing email. It's not just the click from that employee that launched the, 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 the payload that led to the ransomware. It's all the defenses from the moment that thing clicked on out that didn't pick up on it. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, it's funny, I tell my students, too, I'm like, there's an aspect of cyber that everybody views as sexy. Oh, the guy fighting the hacker, you know what I mean? And and these kind of things that you see in the movies or TV, right? You know, that's what everybody thinks of cyber as cool, right? But there's a lot of cyber that just goes back into basic fundamental leadership practices, right? Documenting your processes. Are those processes documented so that if this person moves on, which everybody moves on, right? You cannot have that mindset anymore. If this person is going to work for me forever, that is not a, that is not a 2000 and beyond mindset, right? So did you document what they did? Do they actually follow what they documented? And do you have a control in place to ensure that they are doing it and that someone is checking up on them, right? And that was a major failure at Equifax, right? Is that they didn't have that internal documentation, right? To ensure that that, that structure that that person built, and in this case, you know, I rely on you, you know them, right? You can build the most fantastic structure on the planet, but if you don't build a maintenance support for it, that bridge is just going to collapse in well, a couple of years, well, right? So, so I don't want to make this podcast about Equifax. I will say no, this. no, oh, yeah, um, I understand. I, I will say this: I did have um, um, Graham Payne on the podcast um, last year, uh, literally about a year ago, and so uh, uh, Graham, who was the global CIO for Equifax, who was the only person who was fired because of the breach, um, he was the guy who didn't forward the email on Capitol Hill um, when Dick Smith went to testify, and so um, I will say this. Um, there were inherent reasons of why it failed and you're right but a lot of times i think equifax isn't just the story of a public utility company who was breached by the chinese i think the story there is a public utility company whose um, initial security program was stringent and the people there failed to communicate the importance of that program and failed to work with leadership to understand it and then when they were replaced a new leadership came in they wanted to win favor so they started cutting corners and reducing security features in order to not hear the same things that the business was telling them about the previous leadership does that make sense yeah, and I agree. And and some of that also, and you know, and, and the one thing I want to compare it to, and, and, and not specific to Equifax, let me tell you, this happens everywhere, right. right? Literally everywhere, right? Because documentation is not exactly what we think is sexy or cool, well, right? You even know, DevOps it's like sucks yeah. at documentation. Like everybody I'm sorry does. To cut you off, like, but but yeah, yeah, you're right. Go ahead. Yeah, agile, agile programming, right? Started off because we don't like to document and stick to the plan, and in a lot of cases, of course, that was a smart move on agile, but. You know, you've got to do the unsexy day-to-day nug work stuff, what I call going up the middle, right? Everybody in the military thinks all cool plans are I'm flanking left, I'm flanking right. But some days, and this is taught to me by General Lewis a very long time ago in Turkey, was that, yeah, some days you just got to go up the middle. The middle the middle's not fun. The middle sucks. The middle's hard. The middle's going to cost you a lot. But you got to do it. You got to do that basic foundation of work if you want this to be a lasting you know, and fundamental exercise for your company. So let me ask you this. You're, as, as a security strategist, you spend a lot of time on regulatory uh, issues. So, so what exactly does that mean? Where are you spending your time in your uh, kind of, is it between governance and technology and policy? Uh, I, I'm just, you know, I guess I'll, I'll give you the, the, the question. Um, what aspect of secure, security do you spend the most time on? And it's exactly what you said. For me personally, it's that's my function. So my doctorate is based on uh, uh, financial regulation, 
right, in cybersecurity, which is, which by the way, when you sail that in a room of other people and you're trying to explain to them, you're like, there's a group of 10 people, you're going through your dissertational exercise in your doctorate <laughs> program, and they come up with all these things, and I'm like, uh, I'm doing mine on the federal financial institution's regulatory examinations. And they all look at you like, yeah, we're not reading his for proofreading exercises. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, but it's very key, right? So a lot of organizations, a lot of organizations don't have the um, the uh, the history of the financial institutions in the United States, the financial system, right? The financial system is quite literally a business based on risk. And and every time there's been a large risk to the company, we usually end up creating a regulator. Uh, we created uh, the OCC during the Civil War, right? That's a financial regulator. We created the Federal Reserve for a panic of 1907. We created the FDIC because of the, the Great Depression and the stock market crash of 29. We created the CFPB, the most recent one, right, because of Dodd-Frank in 2010 and, and the crash in 2010 that hurt the country. Uh, the GLBA law that we all follow was created, you know, or, you know, right before the internet bubble and the growth of financial institutions. And so the, the thing is, is that these organizational entities, these federal agencies, these state agencies have created this body of work called regulatory guidance, right? And we all hear about TV, everybody talking about the proliferation of regulations and the administrative state and all these things. Well, that's exactly what this is. And there's a large amount of it. So to give you an example, uh, the federal law is three sentences long. The GLBA that we focus on, the security rule, is three sentences long. The amount of guidance and stuff that we have to follow on the other end for IT and security is thousands of pages long, right? And that's how that goes from a law through the administrative, you know, bureaucracy into these regulations and these, um, these, uh, guidance documents like the FFIC. And so as a cybersecurity person in a bank, you're trying to, you know, normally in cybersecurity, you go, like, okay, I'm going to use NIST CSF. That's my framework, right? I'm going to choose a controls framework and it's going to be ISO or it's going to be 800-53. But in a financial institution, you have what's called a regulatory framework and you have all these things that were, they're written in response to some kind of threat or risk or breach that happened. And you have to apply every single one of those to your information security program. And you have to make sure that you're in sync with that and that you can document it and that you can provide evidence because these regulators are coming in continuously examining you to make sure, because I mean, let's face it, if you're a large financial institution and you collapse, you can take the country with you. I mean, look at Capital One, right? $2 trillion. Look at Wells Fargo. They were up there almost at $2 trillion. They've, of course, you know, constricted a little bit since then. Those are major players, and it's really up to these administrative bodies to make sure that they don't take the entire country with them. Um, the Federal Reserve itself, I mean, the financial system of the Federal Reserve, right, the transfer of money through the financial system, they transfer our GDP in hours, right? That's how much money moves through that system. And it is very important that, you know, security-wise and IT-wise, that one, it's available, and two, that it's, it's available because no one has, you know, has, has breached it. Right. Uh, imagine the run on banks if people didn't trust that that number that you get in your statement or that shows in your app that you couldn't trust that anymore. The whole country would collapse. Well, you would lose trust in financial institutions. And the one thing about democracy is financial stability. Capitalism. Right. Our democracy is funded by capitalism. Right. Yeah. The fact that people can people can come up with a product called Facebook and become a true, you know, bazillionaire, right? <laughs> Jeff Bezos can, everybody see, remembers the picture of Jeff Bezos at that table with the, the Amazon banner next to him, right? Uh -huh. And that's literally how he started that book company, right? Which has become this, this amazing, uh, uh, Elon Musk, right? Look at what he created. Look at what some of these inventors created that have become famous, you know, with all of this. And that's just, you know, that's what we believe in, that you, if you work hard in America, you can succeed. And that's what the ideal that we should strive for, regardless of all of our current problems, right? Right. I mean, th that's the one thing you're absolutely right. When you look at kind of the, the regulatory aspects in cyber, we often really hear a lot about privacy. We rarely hear about kind of a lot of the regulatory frameworks that are out there. And in financial institutions that obviously play a more critical role than, let's say, a Facebook or a Twitter. B but how many like... How does that work from a from a security from an organizational perspective? Does the regulatory piece that deals with security report to the CISO or to the general counsel, or or how's that divided? 
it, it's actually a, it's a it's a series of systems that's been created, right? So if you look at if you look at like an onion, right, the very center is security, right? We call that the first line of defense. And the first line of defense, their responsibility is to manage the cybersecurity or IT risk, right? They're overseen by a next layer, and that's called the second line of defense, and that's risk and compliance in most financial institutions, right? And they, you know, separately they form two functions. Risk is are the risks you're taking worth the benefit, right? Or are you controlling the risks, right? For example, do you have that NIST 800-53 control in place? And is it effective? And then on the other side of it is your compliance department who helps manage a lot of these regulations and these regulatory compliance risks that they have. Um, on top of that is a third line of defense. And their job, of course, is to look at both the second and the first line, and that's your internal audit department. And of course, those are supplemented by external auditors. Now, outside of that bubble completely is the board of directors. And they're reviewing all of these reports, right, especially the ones that are high risk. And then on top of that, you have the federal regulators, right, as that last line of defense out there making sure that all of this is working. And do they make mistakes? Absolutely, right? We've seen that before. But in the financial industry, you know, I mean, we saw what happened with some of the deregulation that happened with, you know, you know, before Dodd-Frank, right, and how people will just assume to take risks with other people's money in a lot of cases, right? And that's something that the financial system can't endure. And that's why all of those systems working together are important. And if they don't work together, there's regulatory impact, there's fines, there's compliance, consent orders, enforcement actions, right, to make sure that they become back into that. I think Wells Fargo is a great example, right, how they were, they had some systemic issues, right, in some of their areas, and the regulators came in, and, and they are empowered to basically fire your board of directors and fire people from the company. A government agency can do that to a bank. And and actually, in some cases, they took it so far in Wells Fargo that they prevented them ever from working in the financial industry again, right? That's how bad the sanctions were in some cases. And they can do that, depending on the bank. Well, and... and but but for for the fake of for the sake of for the fake for the sake of fairness <laughs> yeah um when you're dealing with other people's money and you make bad decisions with other people's money and in in the cases you speak of in the Wells Fargo situation it was inherently cultural relating to those people that mm -hmm. move by the government was absolutely justified yeah Right. right. And I think that's the consensus. Yeah. If you're a four-time DUI driver and the state decides, hey, we're not giving you a license again. You're never driving. You're going to have to Uber around. Mm -hmm. Right? That's legitimate. You've been caught, caught drunk driving four times. Right? Yeah. I think that, that I, I compare that to that. Yeah, and I, I want to show that as like, you know, and, and that's not even the worst case scenario, right? The, the federal regulators every year shut down numbers of banks. And credit unions, they literally walk in, lock the door, and and the FDIC pays out the money to make sure that those accounts are put in other banks, right? They literally do that all the time. That's that's actually what the regulators do. And so if your bank is not performing with its fiduciary responsibility around risk, right, they can just take away your bank. They'll dissolve it, right? And so and, and what you you know, let's go back to the confidence, right? Americans must have confidence in their financial institutions. And even with Dodd-Frank, and let's be real, right, in, in the vast number of financial institutions in the United States, they've done pretty well. I mean, that system has worked for America really, really well. There's always going to be some outliers, right, that cause these problems. So in information security, I will tell you, working in a financial institution is much, much more difficult than anything I've ever done. In the military, the risk was you just can't do that. Right. Oh, look, there's a this is stig that says this does not this setting cannot be turned on. So therefore, everybody in the military says it can't be turned on. Right. There's an army regulation that says this is what's going to happen. You have to do that. What a lot of people also in, in the transition from military to civilian service, right, or even some civilian, you know, some private sector, um, they don't understand is that the business is allowed to take risks. What these financial regulators do is they fine tune what those risks are and how much risk you can take and have you controlled that. So as a cybersecurity person in a financial institution, it's doubly hard. Not only am I worried about industry frameworks and dealing with just regular risk, I have this entire area of compliance risk that not only do I have to manage the risk. So for example, you can be a financial institution, have absolutely no breaches and still get shut down. Right. Because you're not managing your risk. Right. And that's where I went back to Equifax, where, you know, and these other companies where you need to document your procedures. You know, you need to build that infrastructure for that bridge because it's not just good enough to build a bridge and move on. That bridge has to last. It has to survive. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you bring up such a such a good point, which is a lot of times regulators kind of come in. But do regulators get cyber? Right. A lot of times we hear 
in a lot of conversations I've had, I'll, I'll, I'll pinpoint this, right? I, I'm personally, I've, 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 I've ha- I have to deal with GDPR, right? As a virtual CISO, I deal a lot with privacy. That mm-hmm. might be the worst piece of legislation ever written in terms of privacy. Because it's really not a privacy law. It's a right to know law. Like redefine it, right? I have a right to my data. I have a right to know what you use my data for. And I have a right to tell you delete my data. But I don't have a right to privacy. I have the right to know what you're doing with my data. And, 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 and I take that differently. But in your experience, as you're kind of on the regulatory side, do these regulators understand the cybersecurity threats that are coming towards these organizations? And are their procedures and policies have the right um, um, guidelines in place to really ensure that financial institutions are inherently paying attention to security beyond the check mark on a compliance checklist? Yeah, and, 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 you know, I gotta be careful. I don't wanna, again, I don't like painting an entire population with a single brush, right? I would say that in my experience, especially around my dissertation, right, where I worked with regulators, um, I think they're all, you know, as an individual, they all absolutely want to do the best. They want to learn cyber. They want to do it, right? There's just a level of expectations when they move into federal service, right, versus in the private sector. Um, I would say in general, I think they do. I think they listen in a lot of cases, right? I don't, I've never had an experience where a regulator didn't understand it after we explained it in some cases. Just like everybody else in cyber, you can't be an expert on every single thing, right? And I think the best regulators and the ones I, I've been blessed to work with, to be honest with you, have listened to that, right? And they understand it. But, but again, in their situation, they can't take your word for it. Right. They've got it. You've got to show evidence in these cases. And that's exactly what they do. And I think that's the level, you know, what you what you want to have is a regulatory body that's not so intertwined with industry that they don't see the risks coming. Right. You need to make sure that that line is fine and that everybody understands who steps over it. And I think so far what I've seen is the regulators have now. And Equifax is kind of a is one example of something where the regulators don't always you know, they can't inspect your business. Right. Well, they can't do a top to bottom audit. Right. But they rely on people in the company to do the right thing. And in Equifax, that's what you saw, right? These internal complaints, right? That people were doing the right thing that raised that level well, of effort. People were trying to do the right thing. In trying Equifax. to do in most cases, right? Right. Yeah. They, they well, just weren't getting the buy-in from, from the higher-ups to really get the right things done. Yeah. And look at Enron, right? So Enron's not a financial institution, but it's a great example of how people did the right thing. And I cannot – and I apologize right now, the auditor, her name – um, she's written some books and she's done some, you know, work and it's fantastic to listen to her. I got to listen to her once, even though my memory is not working right now, but she was an internal auditor at Enron and, and of course all the bad things they were doing, right. You know what I mean? They were tricking their financial reg, you know, their financial auditors, right. The Arthur Anderson, I think the name of it was, and she discovered this malfeasance and she was told to not look into it, but she did anyway. Her and a secret team at night working together to try to find the truth of what was going on, right? Because her responsibility wasn't to the management of Enron. It was to the truth and to the stakeholder, the stakeholders, the shareholders that actually put their money in that company and trusted it. And that's what she did. And she's the one who blew the whistle on it. It's a fantastic example of someone risking everything to do the right thing. And those people definitely should be applauded. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. We kind of look, you know, um, what what challenges do you still see? Um, um, what what challenges are we still dealing with from a security perspective that you would have hoped we would have overcame them by now? I think everybody says patching, right? I mean, let's face it, uh, and I don't mean specifically USA. I, I wouldn't speak to specifics no, in no, USA. I would say look at the industry. Kind of industry yeah. in the industry, I think what we forget sometimes is what is not sexy is is necessary, right? Patching is literally not fun. No one enjoys patching, right? I mean, I'm sure there's some people out there, don't get me wrong, the people are the geniuses who created the WSUS, right, at Microsoft and all these other folks, uh, and they do. But patching is just, it's ground labor. It's the help desk version of cybersecurity, right? You know what I mean? It's its the day in, day out, following procedures, updating a machine, moving on to the next one. It's a job that's thankless and yet will crush a company. Look at Equifax, right? You know what I mean? And look at some of these other companies that had this problem. We have been patching computers since they were created. Right. And, and, and I think you look at some of these foundational elements and you're like, how can we still be bad at this? Right. How, how can cybersecurity, how can we miss this? And you got to start looking at your IT partners and the vendors and the systems. Right. And, and does the government enforce a unified patching approach? Right. Should there be like we have cert, thank God. Right. You know what I mean? But should companies that make software be required 
to report to cert, right? I, I think we're missing that in a lot of cases. Um, I think if you deliver software out there, you have a duty, a do care responsibility, right, to, to promote that, your software out there and say, yes, we have a flaw. We found a flaw. We're going to fix it. Um, I think internally, patching is just, you know, vulnerability management has become not a fun thing. Now, we've also tried to automate that. I think security is getting better, especially with the advances in AI and ML, right? Because that is definitely a field where AI and ML will shine, right? Being able to make these vulnerability decisions. Hey, you know, it's, you know, uh, is it, uh, is it, uh, I see part A and part B, but part C, what is that risk? And do I, you know, what do I report and say this person needs to fix it? Because you only have a finite number of patching resources. You have to have that echelon of, of risk, right? High risk, medium risk, low risk, and the other calculations that go into it. And that whole thing is just not a fun process in a lot of cases, right? I don't tell my students that someday they be, they be lucky enough to be the patching person, right? To run a vulnerability scanner. I think I would lose half of them if I did that, right? But it's in this, it's, it's very necessary and it's something that We've literally been doing since computers were created, and I don't think we've perfected it yet. I'll agree 100%. I think that, you know, when I do my practitioner brief every single morning, the reason I do it is because I feel like we uh, often don't open that patch notification email. In fact, I was speaking to uh, uh, an executive at one uh, one of the bigger companies who launches those patch emails. And I asked him for the open rate, and he said it's embarrassing. He goes, "Yeah, I'm sure." I mean, he goes, yeah. "Sometimes it's in the below the teens." So, it, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and, and I mean, I'm lucky enough to work with a bunch of people who do it well, right? But out there in the business, I mean, imagine you're you're a, you're a single cybersecurity guy in a company, right? You're or one or two of you maybe, or or in a company you may be the CIO, CISO, right? In some of these cases, and so you literally have so many other priorities on your plate. Where does patching Windows Server 2016 come in? to your daily importance, right? Your daily routine. And I think that's where automation, you know, and and, and, think, and there is a lot of vendors who do this, right? And they do it very well, you know, Qualys, Nessus, many, many other ones, right? And we rely on that. I, I worked for a company called Digital Defense, which was fantastic about vulnerability scanning. You know, I think as we get into that, as people understand that, as executives see that that kind of stuff is key, to, you know, that's literally the concrete that the pillars of the bridge are made of, right? You, you will not survive if that starts to erode. Right, because it's because what we've seen in some cases, it's just one patch. You can miss one patch that can ruin your day. Well, but but the the other side to patching is, it's not every time you patch is it seamless and keeps, yeah, you break stuff. It, it breaks stuff. It creates a business hindrance, and when that happens, there's there's that that cost the company that cost the business something. And in some cases, it also costs a person their job. Well, and let's be fair, right? If you're an IT person, I've been on that side as well, especially in infrastructure, you don't like to see a patching report because <laughs> that's just literally a one through 7,000 list of things that you need to do, right? You know what I mean? None of that is moving. None of that moves your your team ahead, right? None of that delivers a new thing that you know the business wants to see, right? And, and let me equate it to an infrastructure that you're familiar with, like roads, Right. Every day people go out there and fix the roads. They patch the roads. They put potholes. You know, they fix potholes. Depending on the they city fix you things. live in. Yeah, depending <laughs> on the city you live in, right? Some of them do it well, some of them do it. Right. And 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 I will tell you this, right? Every day I go to work, right? When I used to commute to work before COVID, right? If I got to work fine and there was no issues, I didn't get out of my car and say, Hey, thank you, everybody who did all that work to make this road great today. It's just not, this is not human nature. We don't do that, right? But if there's a pothole or the road is broken, there's a diversion you have to go through, you're, you know, in your head, you're letting a lot of people know exactly what you think about that process, right? And, and, the, and I think the thing that we do is we don't turn around to our IT partners enough and go, you know what, you're doing fantastic. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you know, you are fantastic, you know, because is that stuff that they do, that patching stuff makes you in cybersecurity successful. Right, we rely on them to do that, and that's a thankless job in many occasions. Right. So, what are, what are we doing really good right now? What are you proud of? What are, what obstacle has cyber really overcame at this point? 
I don't. Well, I, I think I think it's going to be a you know there's a, a book uh, James Horner. I think he was the chief of staff of the Air Force in Desert Storm. He was a strategist for it, but he wrote this thing about how it was missile or the wing, and the Air Force went through this years of decades of things where they would defeat. You know, okay, look, there's a better missile. Airplanes are obsolete. Oh, look, now the airplanes have better countermeasures and the missiles are going to be obsolete. And they've literally went back and forth, right, for decades, missile or the wing, missile or the wing. And I think in cybersecurity, it's just that way. I think right now we're on the uptick, right? We have AI, ML. Uh, we have a lot of these systems that we can, you know, it, you know, invest heavily in, right, that will automate these processes. An automated process will get done correctly, right? You know, you have a human in the process. They're just human. So the more things that we can automate, the better. Um, but we have to stay ahead. And one thing I see coming up, too, is we, we keep forgetting all this AI and ML. Hackers are using the same stuff, right? Hackers have the ability to use the same types of technology that we do, right? And it's this constant balance back and forth. So I don't think I can pick one real thing. I think we have a lot of segments in the market, especially around vendor technology, where everybody wants to do one thing better than everybody else. And everybody's stuck on the, I need to sell you the problem before I sell you the solution. And we, we get stuck in problems sometimes, right? Um, but I think we have a very vibrant vendor community to solve the problems, which is fantastic. Um, uh, I would I would say a lot of threat intelligence has done really well. They see the attacks coming, especially look at nation state attacks, right? So USA is one of those companies that support the military. Well, you know, and we make you know, there's a joke to be made that you know they may not hack the Pentagon because the Pentagon will send them a Tomahawk cruise missile as a read receipt. Hey, thank you. <laughs> You know what I mean? You know, military financial institutions can't do that, right? So we can be attacked, right? And we do really well at it. But, you know, your threat intelligence teams looking at the type of TTPs, right? The tactics, techniques, and procedures of your enemy and what they're using today and defending you against it. I think we've done really well in that area. Um, and that's a hard area. Yeah, that's the uh, what I like to call um, the, the, the reading between the lines to realize what's real and what's not, what's true and what isn't and what's going to happen and what, you know, the smoke screen from one side to the smoke screen from the other side. What do you see as a very positive thing about the security community in, in, as a whole? What are some of the things you're really proud of? Growth. I mean, we have jobs, right? You know what I mean? You know, I, I think in the IT industry, you've seen a consolidation over the past 20 years into these giant cloud data centers, right? You know what I mean? Nobody goes out, you know, a, a, a small company doesn't go out and buy an exchange server anymore, right? They dial into Office 365. So as you've seen this consolidation in the IT industry, you've seen a lot less need in some cases for certain types of IT skills, right? And they've actually, you know, they, they've, they've, they've automated themselves out of it. I don't think you see that in cyber. You still need the human element in cyber to talk about cyber, to develop cyber. There's always going to be things in the background that can be run by a computer, you know, just fine. But with cybersecurity and the confidence that we have, the business has the confidence in us, it still requires a cybersecurity person to go test that control, to go evaluate that system, to do that risk assessment, to put the human factor on it. And I think in a lot of cases, people invest in their people in cybersecurity. We've seen the median wage for cybersecurity people go up over the past couple of years, right? Uh, you've seen the job opportunities for cyber expand throughout the company. We're starting to get into companies who've never really thought about having a CISO. Now we'll have a CISO. Um, look at New York DFS, right? The New York cybersecurity law. One of the first ones in the country that actually created a requirement that insurance companies have a CISO. Now USA, we're a financial institution. We've had a CISO since 1999 and well before that, right? But look at these some of these smaller companies who never really needed an, a CISO, a separate CISO before. Now they're starting to see the need through regulation. And a lot of companies are just seeing the need through the risk. So, you know, not being one, you know, I, I don't want to be that person on TV. You know what I mean? What do I do to make sure I'm not that person on TV explaining why their business got hacked? Absolutely. So we're moving to my favorite part of the podcast, the CISO Insight Round. Welcome to the hot seat, um, Jason. So here's the deal. Here's what we're doing. Um, you're going to get six questions. You get to answer them with one word, one word only. Okay. Um, we want to get to know you a little bit better, Jason. One buzzword you'd bury in my buzzword graveyard. Uh, connected tissue. <laughs> Every time I think of it, I just have like, you know, anatomical thoughts, like my shoulder hurts, right? You know what I mean? So definitely kill that one. Um, one technology that's going to change the way we do cybersecurity. I think AI. Eventually AI will, right? You know, you're offloading the decision from the human mind, right? In a lot of cases, it's, it's the low level decisions, like how your brain works, 
You know what I mean? Your brain, you have the medulla oblongata that tells you how to breathe. This part is not worrying about you breathing. So, Last book you read? Uh, I'm into science fiction. So the last book I read was called, uh, uh, it's a, it was the good, the bad, and the ugly, but it was about uh, Mech Warriors by Mark Wandry, okay. right? And it's I, I enjoy fluff books when I'm driving in the morning. So you're expecting some high speed CISO book? No, uh, uh, I apologize. I I spend my day with it. I I commute with uh, science fiction, so I don't run people over. And 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 I get that. I I listen. I don't have to commute, thank God. But when I do have to drive, um, I'll I'll listen to either a podcast or 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 I'll listen to an audiobook. But I I, I I can't listen like CISO stuff. I've got my books behind me and next to me, and that's where I keep my cyber books in my office. Um, okay, last movie you saw? Uh, Dunkirk. So Dunkirk. we're stuck at home, right? I watched Dunkirk, and uh, being ex-military, I kind of avoid movies that are kind of sad around the military, uh-huh. right? And it's just a reaction that I have. But uh, what an amazing movie, right? Chris Nolan does not disappoint. I, I will tell you the movies I watched before that were all 12 Star Wars movies with my eight and 10 year old. <laughs> I finally got him to watch it. You know, I will tell you right now, if John Favreau ever listened to this, thank you for creating baby Yoda, because that was the only way I could get my girls into watching Star Wars for the first time. And now that they've seen it, they love all of them. And we're halfway through the Clone Wars animated TV show. So That's thank awesome. you for baby Yoda. What's your favorite music? I'm still stuck in the 80s. I'm not going to lie. In excess, Sting, right? Uh, uh, that's just about where I am. So, you know, I always thought it was funny when I was a kid. My parents were listening to, like, country and 70s music. And I'm like, ah, I'm never going to be like that. Nowadays, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, let's listen to Paula Cole from the 90s or something. You know what I mean? So, some Depeche Mode on my commute here. <laughs> I, I will say music's always really funny I, because a lot of times it tells you a lot about 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 a person, right? Like some of the stuff we, we go through. And so what's one thing you took away from this COVID-19 crisis? Uh, people can work from home effectively. I, I think there was always this, and, and I will tell you the great thing about working at USA is they've had a large reliance on working from home. So we have these like robots that drive around USA with telepresence robots, right? So people can actually be in physical meetings and stuff. And I think now across the industry, everybody who thought they could not work from home effectively were forced to work from home and become effectively. And I think that's a fantastic thing because look at, look at the environment, look at our traffic, look at our roads, look at gas, look at all of these things, right? That contribute to these, these, you know, these, these, these urban nightmares, right? That we call cities. You know what I mean? Look at all of that now looking at from it. Well, the only time I'm going to go out is at night, right? And we're going to go to dinner or something, right? It changes the perspective of a lot of people about remote working. I, I can tell you, I know hundreds of people that probably won't come back to work because they enjoy it, right? I think I'm one of those people who have to have a mix, right? Especially at my level, I, I need to have a mix of that experience. But being able to work from home has helped so many. Look, look at look at parents with small children, right? You know what I mean? Look at families who may have some, you know, the, some health issues. Uh, look at just the day to day stuff that you know. You know hey, I have to take the kid to the dentist at 10 o'clock. Well, now I don't have to leave work for an hour to drive there to pick up my child, to take him to the dentist, to drop them back off and to drive back to work, right? You've eliminated that as a problem in the future if we start embracing work from home. And the greatest proof of, of effort was this COVID-19 crisis. It can be done. Do, do you think the work from home is, is do you think more organizations are going to completely adopt it? I think it's going to be a large, I mean, I think you're going to see in the industry. I, I absolutely think so. I think especially a lot of industry, USA, of course, is looking at work from home in a large scale, right? Look at the cost of a building. Look at the cost of an employee. Look at, look at all the security it requires to have an employee in the building and things like that, right? I think what we learned is a lot of the fears in cybersecurity that we had about working from home, they didn't materialize, right? There, there's been no large breaches because of work from home, right? We have not seen that. Yet. We've seen an increase in ransomware. We've seen a 500% increase of course. in phishing. We've seen a, a, a 280% increase in successful ransomware attacks. And, and that's mainly because of um, organizations that weren't prepared where people went home and mm-hmm. a family has two laptops and mom and dad are working off the laptop and then the kids get on it and 
um, unsecured Wi-Fi networks and, 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 and stuff like oh, that. If you're a company who has desktops for your employees, you need to be investing in laptops, right? You know, that's what those employees need to be using, right? The financial industry, you don't, you can't use a shared machine, period. Co- right? so, COVID-19 yeah. killed the desktops. <laughs> yeah, I think it did in the workplace. Exactly. People want to be mobile and now it's for a fact. I will also tell you that, you know, there's, there's some good cyber hygiene practices that people need to learn if they're not used to working from home. But guess what? We can train that. Right, we can train that. It's absolutely doable because we're training it right now in the industry. You know what I mean? I, I still think there's a lot of people who enjoy that face-to-face experience or are going to have to have that, right? But I actually enjoy being on a sales call with a vendor and I see his kid run across the background. It makes that personal connection. You know what I mean? It's 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 kind of fantastic. But I think businesses you're, now you're realize you're not just a snake oil salesman. You yeah. have little ones. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like you're human too sometimes, right? Um, but let's face it. I mean, okay, look at the people that travel consultants, right? Every business has hundreds and hundreds of consultants. I, I have consultants that work for me. Why do I want to pay them to travel in the future? Why would I have the company pay that expense? And sometimes travel can be 10, 15, 20% of your actual consulting fee, right? Care and feeding of a person flying them across country, causing a disruption in their life. You just don't need to do that anymore in technology. I think well, we've proved the method. I, I will say that um, I, I'm flying out next week. By the time mm-hmm. this podcast publishes, I'll be where I'm supposed to be. <laughs> um, and and so th- th- there are specific things that no matter how much technology you put into it, agreed, you still need that face to face interaction. I, I think you're, you are. Um, I think I, I started traveling a lot internationally and domestically around 2010. And I feel like now we're going to go back to that level because I remember in 2010, you would board a flight on a Monday morning. It wasn't always full. And last year, in the last four or five years, you board a Monday morning flight. I think 2015 thereof, you board a, a, a an 8 a.m. morning flight out of Atlanta to go to New York. It's 100% capacity. There's multiple flights leaving at 8 a.m. to go to New York from Atlanta. Uh, one's going to Newark. One's going to LaGuardia. One's going to JFK. Um, because of that, that demand where... Five years before that, it wasn't there because business travel then was also very much reliant on conference calling, right? I mean, everyone invested in like a Cisco meeting room with the camera Mm -hmm. and the big microphone and the Mm -hmm. audio, the the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And now we use Zoom and we get a $100 headset and we're, we're pretty much set. A $20 headset in some cases, or your headphones from your iPhone that you're using anyway to jog, right? You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's really, uh, the problem is, is that you needed a proof of concept to prove to leadership that it could be done. Right now, there's always going to be jobs, right? Like I will still like to go in, right? I still got to meet with people. I got to do that. But if you're a person that you commute for 45 minutes in the morning to go sit in front of a computer at work, to leave, to come home and commute for 45 minutes to get home, what are we doing to you as an employee? Are well, we making your life better? Well, right? You know what I mean? I, I agree with you. I mean, the one thing you will, the one thing that a lot of people have seen in terms of, and I'll say this, in terms of specific, and it's not jobs, it's personality traits. Mm-hmm. Right? Agreed. Um, there have been people who, in the pre COVID 19, who would have to sit an hour, an hour and a half in traffic to get to the office who then would take them just half an hour just to kind of get into the groove of work, right? So mm-hmm. the person's in at 9 until 9.45, especially if it's in the traffic area. They're just not yeah. themselves. They just want to have a cup of coffee. They want to loosen up. They've been sitting in their car for an hour and a half, right? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's frustrating. It's extremely no, frustrating. It, it is, and it's and – it's... And it, it, it contributes to a lot of things that are actually just ancillary. So, like, for example, look at the health. Companies pay for health care costs, right? Are you increasing health care costs by having a person who just drives into the office every day? Absolutely. So, yeah, I spend, I spend probably around eight hours a week in a car. And if, you know, if it tells you anything, I have 700 audiobooks in my Audible account, right, <laughs> over the years, right? Not only being in the military, I was actually way back in the day. Um, but I just I plow through books to keep me sane. Right. You know what I mean? Or podcasts, right? Like obviously yours and stuff to try to keep me sane. But I think people can do so much better. Right. And I think I think one of the things and and let's be let's be honest. Right. It's leadership in some cases. How do I lead a virtual team? If you have a previous mindset or an old, you know, or a, a a mindset of I need to see them working. You know, that's not the future. 
right? You need to judge people by the work product that you ask them to complete, right? Are you giving them a task, a measurable task that you can measure and ensure that well, they finish? But that, and that goes back to exactly what you said, which is leadership, right? A lot of times, I think this is the one thing COVID-19 did is it separated great managers from bad managers in a way that you couldn't do before. Whereas in, you know, we've always, I think all of us at one point or another in our career worked for a really, really bad manager, someone who we learned more from in terms of things not to do than things to do, right? I think yeah. those people have now been called out for what they really are. And the, yeah. the really good leaders who may not have been able to really get the face time with the executive leadership that may not have been as comfortable in that. Uh, building those relationships and really kind of winning over opinions. Now that you're being judged directly off of your production, people are looking at them and going, oh, wow, his team's really outperforming everyone else. What is he doing? And you're going to get that FaceTime. You're going to get that relationship. You're now being judged based on your results rather than the suit and tie and shoes and car you're driving into work with, which was, you know, when we watch old movies, one of the things I've been doing in COVID and at the evening is watching old movies, right? Yeah. So you watch like a movie from like 98, right? And you got the guy showing up in a thousand dollar suit and a $50,000 car, right? And that was kind of Hollywood's idea of showing you like, but this guy wasn't smart. He had no instincts. He was just a kiss ass and, and knew how to build relationships. But you know, yeah. And and now that person's being called out for it because you no longer have that FaceTime. Your excuses no longer work. It's now, you know, do or die. Well, and let's call it what it is. It's trust. Yep. You know, I mean, a leader has to trust the people they hire to do the job. You have to give them their left and right limits. You have to give them what you expect of them. And then you have to manage them. And if they don't perform, then you have to do the other things that leaders are trained to do, right, on the disciplinary scale. But if you trust your employees, to do what's right, then you can trust them to work from home. That is very if true. you can't trust them, it's either your problem or you have the wrong employee. Yep. Right. You know what I mean? And I think they're, and let's, and let's be clear. I, I think it's unfair to say leaders should just adjust automatically to virtual teams. That's a skill set. We need to, we need to look at that as that's a muscle that they've not exercised that maybe we do need to do some training around. Right. So there are many things around virtual teaming that you can learn. Virtual leadership is a different set of skills than in-person leadership for a lot of folks. I think as a company, it's behooving on us to go back and say, hey, let's create some training around that, maybe, right? Let's teach them some effective leadership practices as being a virtual leader, right, to, to up our, our actual performance rate. Because they're a good leader in the building, maybe, right? Maybe they're a good leader in the building. Maybe you trust them. They understand the business. I don't want to toss them out because they can't figure out virtual teaming. Maybe they just need the push. Maybe they need the training, right? People don't automatically understand what a phishing email is until you train them. Does that mean they're a bad employee? No. I, I, and, and basically what I'm saying is I don't think we should judge a painter by how good of a car mechanic he is, right? You know what I mean? And, 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 and it doesn't mean that they're not good at what they do. I can't judge a brain surgeon because he doesn't understand SharePoint, right? I can't judge that armor colonel because he doesn't know the importance of a password. You, you know what I mean? I think we need to, I need to, we need to look at and go, maybe our leaders need training too. And I think maybe in the end, they'll be more comfortable with it, right, as we move forward. Absolutely. Folks, Dr. Jason Edwards from USAA joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time, the wisdom, the ability to really kind of dive in on a lot of these topics and um, really give us some, some great content today. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. Folks, we have so much more coming up in the next few episodes i'll be traveling i'll be on site i'm going to be meeting with several cisos on site yes i'm going back to face-to-face -face interviews thank you so much thank you thank you thank you thank you doing this over video is one thing and it's great but sitting in person in in, in a studio uh is a whole other experience so we're very excited for that again folks dr jason edwards from usaa <sighs> I got to get a clap <laughs> thing in here until next week, guys, make sure you subscribe. Give us five stars. You can follow uh, uh, Dr. Jason Edwards on LinkedIn. Um, he probably has one of the best LinkedIn pages for cybersecurity people. There's at least one good video every single day on there that just makes your day. Um, and I think the one I saw today was the Slavic car crash. Um, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, lessons learned. Lessons learned. <laughs> Don't do that ever again. Don't.
Um, Don't you'll be have to follow Dr. Jason Edwards or uh, check it out. We'll share it on our CyberHub podcast page on LinkedIn as well. Until next time, folks, this is James Azar telling you thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for subscribing. Thanks so much for tuning in. And most importantly, stay cyber safe.